We are still in our series entitled Live the Ten. We're in our seventh week of Living the Ten. And the, the Ten Commandments are not just a list of rules, but they talk to us about who God is. And it's not just good enough to know them. As good as that is, we need to live them. It's hard to live it if I don't know it, but just knowing it is not enough. We are called to live it. So let's just review in our mind. Maybe if you know it, you can say it out loud with me. The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall not worship idols. We're, we're, we were strong on number one. We're kind of weak on number two. That's okay. The third, uh, it, it, it helps me remember the number three has a Mr. Big Mouth. And do not take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, if you take that four down, it makes a dotted line coming down. It makes an H. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Number five, if you remember my artwork, it's the Mr. Big Ear guy. It's to listen, honor your mother and father, listen to your mother and father. Number six was last week, you shall not murder. And this week, number seven, if you make it crooked and it's on its side and do a dotted line, it's an A, but it's not a good A, it's a bad A, you shall not commit adultery. This, you shall not kill, number six, that's right, Joe, that was last week. You know what? As we look at this seventh commandment, we need to remember that whenever God gives a negative command, it is always with a positive purpose. Negative meaning you shall not do something in the negative sense. There is a positive outcome from that. I love how one author puts it that uh, whenever God says don't, he's saying don't, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt those around you. It's going to hurt someone else. You're going to hurt God. He's not there to be a cosmic killjoy. He's there to say this is how to get the best out of life. This is how you can live the ten. As we look tonight at this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Nothing destroys families faster than adultery. God says, this is my protection plan for you and for your family. You shall not commit adultery. Now, for some of you, you may be thinking tonight, oh, man, if I knew it was number seven, I would have skipped tonight. I don't know that I need to hear about adultery tonight. And I also know that it's not just some people who think, well, I, I got this one down. I don't need to hear about this. Sometimes the mere teaching or preaching on this commandment brings back all kinds of painful memories and emotions for some. It's my heart, and I want you to know right from the beginning that if you hear teaching about adultery and you have some painful thoughts or memories attached to that, I want you to know that God has hope and grace for you. If you've walked through this and you have committed the sin of adultery, I want you to know that if you've confessed your sin, repent, that means you have turned, you're ready to go the other direction with God's help, He has not only forgiven you, He has forgotten that sin. Some may be going through guilt. The scars of this sin can linger for a long time, but if you've confessed and you've repented and you have this feeling of guilt or shame, I want to suggest to you that it most likely is not the Lord. This is the enemy creeping down your throat again. There may be some here tonight that it's not out of a painful memory of what choice you have made. It may be a choice that someone has made for you. I don't share this flippantly. I share this with the greatest sense of importance for us to not only hear, but to live this command. God 
is not wanting us to hear a teaching tonight on how human sexuality is evil. God created sex in the context of marriage. This is a good thing. God is not saying you should have no intimacy between a husband and wife. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And this command is so strong because God wants that bond between a husband and a wife to be very special. It's like everything else that God has created. There can be good when it is controlled in the confine of his intention and his plan. God wants us to allow this to be a blessing, but not to abuse it. It happens in so many areas of God's creation. Just think about water for a minute. You cannot live without water, but too much of it, and you drowned. You could let fire warm you, and it can be a blessing to you, or it can burn you, and it can even bring death. God is saying physical intimacy is a blessing in the context of marriage, but it is not to be used outside of marriage. God says, I have given you this gift of sex, and I want it to be a blessing to you. Today, we're going to look at how seriously God's instruction is on how to love Him with our sexuality. Today, many of us need to hear this message and this warning and instruction And in a crowd this size, even the group we have here tonight, no doubt I know the law of averages is suggesting to me that there is someone amongst us who desperately needs the hope of the command that God gives. Not condemnation, but the hope in Him. Here's a couple reasons that we have to address this. Not only we don't get to pick and choose which commandments we like and want to talk about and which ones we don't. That's a good reason why we need to talk about the seventh commandment. But also look at some of the statistics. And whenever I hear statistics, it aggravates me because uh, I'm not sure where we get them sometimes and, and how do we come up with that. You know, I heard a statistic once that 85% of all statistics are made up. Pretty sure that one was made up. But from the Barna Research Group, who has a lot of credibility, especially in the Christian uh, community, uh, this is some stats that have come from them. If you have an outline, you can fill in the blank here. 42 is the number. 42% of all adults surveyed considered having a physical sexual relationship with someone of the opposite sex to whom they were not married to be morally acceptable. Now, now that's a a mouthful. 42%, just under half of the general population who was surveyed, and they said, hey, having a physical sexual relationship with someone who is not my spouse is morally fine. That's disturbing, but the next one is even more jarring. 35% who claim to be born-again Christians consider having a physical sexual relationship with someone of the opposite sex to whom they are not married to be morally acceptable. This makes me want to shake my head and do a double take and say, how can this be? How can we claim to be Christians who follow the teachings of Jesus and yet begin to read this and say, to have a sexual relationship with someone who we are not married to is okay. God has been very clear on this. Well, what does the Bible say? How many of you have heard somebody say, well, there's just a lot of ways to interpret the Bible. And there's just a lot of different ways that we could take that and we could live that out. Now, don't misunderstand me. Every time we pick up the Bible, we are involved in interpretation. Interpretation is not a bad thing. 
Even if you have been blessed with the ability to read biblical Hebrew and Greek, you are coming to it from a lens of your own experiences, and you are interpreting, you are reading with your own experience. So interpretation is not bad, but often when we hear this excuse especially on a strong, stringent part of Scripture, when someone says, well, there's a lot of ways to interpret that, most of the times it comes from someone who's not committed to allowing the Word of God to be an authority in their life. And hear me, there are some passages that take some careful study and understanding, and it can be a challenging passage for us to understand. And it's good to study and look at this, but I want to suggest tonight, Exodus chapter 20, turn with me, verse 14 I mean, this is not some deep mystery here. This is not some allegorical language here. This is not something that is super compound and complex. I mean, and look at these five words in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. I mean, how many ways can we interpret this? 10, 12, 15, 20? I mean, what part of you do we not understand? What part of shall not do we not understand? Commit adultery do we not get? This is clear. Any intention for us to say, well, I'm not quite sure what that means, is a good flag that should be raised to say, I'm not so sure that I really want the Word of God to shape me. I think I'd rather shape the Word of God to fit what it is I've already planned on doing. Interpretation is not bad. It's necessary. In fact, it's involved in every time we read Scripture. But to try to read into Scripture what we want to have happen gets us in trouble every single time. You see that this passage is one that is very clear for us. Hebrews 13.4 also is clear. Husbands and wives must be faithful to each other. If you're taking notes, jot that in. There we go. It's on the screen. Wonderful. There is PowerPoint. Husband and wives must be faithful to each other. God will judge those who are immoral and commit adultery. I want to tell you how Jesus interprets this seventh commandment. He didn't loosen it up. He didn't kind of mix it up. He doesn't say, well, I know this makes some of us feel bad, so let's kind of ignore it. He tightens this up. In Matthew five twenty seven and 29, just listen to this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Matthew five twenty eight. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And Jesus is saying, one, you cannot do this on your own strength. You need my power to be holy in this area. And two, this is serious business. I mean, sweet Jesus, precious Jesus is using some pretty graphic language. If your eye is causing you to sin, go ahead and pluck it out and put it in the eye bucket at the back of the worship center as you leave because it would be better for you not to have an eye than to be thrown into the fire of hell. What is Jesus trying to say? Is he advocating us plucking our eyes out? Or is he saying this is so serious, it is something that we cannot ignore. He tightens this up and he says adultery can happen in our heart in our mind. It's amazing to me that people say that Jesus was a good teacher. 
He was a good teacher. I don't know if he was the Messiah. He's a good teacher. And yet they don't really know what he has taught. Or they reject the things that he has taught. Jesus would just flat out say, this is right and this is wrong. He would call it out as he saw it. According to the Bible, there is holy sex and there is unholy sex. Holy sex is the way God intended it. That which takes place between a husband and a wife and the fulfillment of their marital relationship. Unholy sex is everything else. There's not a lot of gray here. It's everything else. Sex is for marriage. Period. It's what we call holy matrimony. There's not gray area here. Now our culture is saturated with unholy sex. This fact that we are bombarded with this opposite message day in and day out, every moment of the day. In fact, the church is being silenced on this issue, if not just for the fact of how often we get the messages from the world. Now, I have had a number of opportunities to preach about being pure before God, but the amount of times you've heard me preach or talk about sex from the pulpit pales in comparison to the every moment message you get from the world around you. God is saying, don't take your cue from the world. You need to know my ten. You need to live my ten because it helps you have the best life possible. See, we will sometimes begin to question if we should even talk about this in church. That always that always intrigues me. If, if this is you, I'm sorry, I have to say it. I can't resist. <laughs> should, should we talk about sex in church? I, I don't know. Jesus talked about it. God talks about it. We, we see it in the Bible, so guess what? We're going to talk about it. Maybe we should re, recategorize that, that chat room session as, uh, do I feel comfortable about talking about sex in church? Well, that's fine. Say no. That's fine. You don't feel comfortable. But should we? I mean, this is not up for for debate or discussion. God talks about this. God wants us to hear His holy plan for us. He's not a killjoy. He has given this to us as a gift. In fact, some of us will hear in the next 30 minutes this teaching from God's Word, and yet we will leave and the culture will bombard us, and it will even get us to question what is being presented tonight. And sometimes we may even be frustrated with what we're about to hear, and we're not sure if we want to accept it, and we spend so much time looking for loopholes and ways around it, instead of just getting honest and saying, do I really want to live the tin, or would I like to get the tin down to something I could get on a business card and still live the way I want to? Now this is a personal subject today, and I know that, but I don't understand how we are so easily offended by clear instruction from Jesus. I want you to imagine with me that you were on an off-ramp, and you're looking at an off-ramp onto the interstate, and you've seen those on and off-ramps, and if you were coming up to a ramp and there's a sign clearly saying, do not enter, would you be offended, or would you appreciate it? I mean, there's danger coming if you're going the wrong way on the on or off ramp, going right into head-on traffic, and there's a sign that says, do not enter. This should be something we go, thank you, I appreciate this. But if we would stop and just get offended or say, 
Well, what does that mean? Let's contemplate do not. Well, what does do not mean? What does enter really mean? And we keep driving and we get into a wreck and we say, well, well of course. We should see the same thing about God's warning he gives to us. This is not a teaching. I've said it probably ten times by now. You may be sick of hearing it, but I want it to be ingrained in your mind. This is not a teaching to say that sex is evil. This is a teaching to say that God has given us the boundaries for a holy and healthy life. Well, let's shift gears for a second, and let's begin to take this commandment apart and look at what Jesus is saying to us. It's simple, it's straightforward, but we make it complicated. What kinds of adultery are there? It says, thou shalt not commit adultery, and sometimes we want to understand what adultery is. One, I want to suggest to you that there's actual physical adultery. This is that physical interaction or relationship that was intended for marriage, and it's being used outside the marriage covenant. This is adultery. Unfortunately, there's a whole number of generations that have been affected by a Bill Clinton syndrome that I call it, of this trying to redefine what is sexual relations. We come up with loopholes and different understandings and try to confuse and muddy the waters to get out of a lie, to get out of a jam, to get out of a situation. And Jesus is saying to us, if adultery is anything, if the seventh commandment is speaking anything, it is certainly talking about physical adultery, physical sexual intimacy with anyone other than your spouse where you're committed in a lifelong marriage covenant. Scripture says we should not even have a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint. Let's look at number two. Adultery is not only this physical adultery, but I want to suggest to you our culture is plagued with cyber adultery. This is very real, and if Jesus was here teaching today, I am convinced he would speak specifically about this. Now hear me, technology is amoral. It's not good or it's not bad. I mean, my computer doesn't work sometimes, so I think that's bad, but my computer is not evil. I want to think that it's evil when it doesn't do what I want it to do, but technology, it's amoral. It's not good, it's not bad, but how we use it can bring all kinds of blessings or curses to us. What are the challenges in maintaining moral righteousness with the increasing ease and ways to explore unhealthy sexual encounters, we are faced with this temptation of cyber adultery. Friend, online relationships are real. Online communication is real. Email and text messages and social media, we are accountable for our relationships and interactions with others. I want to suggest tonight that we can commit adultery in our heart and in our mind between wireless signals, between the cable and the phone line. In this cyber world, we are accountable for our relationships. Uh, Without breaking any confidence, I I want to share with you there are scores of people over the last number of years that I've met with that have ignored this do not enter sign and they have come head on with a collision of a crisis in their marriage. It's just Facebook. It's just text messages. It's just a chat room. It's just emails. Hey, an email relationship, a cyber relationship can be a very real relationship. When Jesus says... 
even the one who looks at a man or a woman with lustful thoughts has committed adultery in their heart. This is not a crazy extension to say even the one who communicates in a lustful way, in an adulterous way, through cyber relationships, has committed adultery in their heart. Well, let's look at a third. Emotional adultery. Well, what is this? It's intimacy that when we divert from our spouse and we give it to somebody else. It's doing married things with my heart with someone who I'm, I'm not married to. I remember in student ministries, this was an area that I felt like we needed to talk about quite a bit. Students, how far is too far? It's not just drawing a physical line, but it's saying don't do married things with your heart until you are married to that person. Because you're too young and you can't understand. No, it has nothing to do with our age. It has everything to do with what God has given us in the context of marriage is a tremendous gift. Physical adultery, cyber adultery, and emotional adultery. Jesus talks specifically about mental adultery. Lust. I, I, I didn't print the statistic in the outline. And I'm not quite sure why. It jarred me so much. I had to check it two or three times. I, I received it from Focus on the Family. And they had some sightings from... The Barna Group as well. But the average age a child is exposed to their first pornographic image is between the ages of 8 and 10. I read it and I thought, well, that's just a scare tactic and that can't be right. The average age. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, we live in a world where everything good and evil is at our fingertips through all kinds of electronics. So burn all the electronics. No, technology is amoral. It's not good and it's not bad. But we need to be wise about what windows we open up. And gaming systems. And iPods. And iPhones. And the computer. Are we helping protect those around us? It's preaching to the choir when we talk about protecting our children from images that they don't need to see. But we often want to change the subject when we talk about protecting ourselves from images we don't need to see. How are you taking care of your eyes? How are you protecting your eyes? Jesus says mental adultery is real adultery. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, why does this happen? Jesus is telling us to not commit adultery physically or in our heart. The, the Ten Commandments, the seventh one is telling us not to commit adultery. How does adultery happen? How does affairs happen? Look with me at this. Proverbs twenty two fourteen: Adultery is a trap. But we can see it coming. Understanding how to resist this trap is key in resisting the culture. One, we need to remember that people are basically sinful. We need God. Left to our own devices, we all are lost. When we recognize that we are sinful and we have a bent towards evil, we can begin to see our need for God. Any other attempt to come at this issue without understanding that we are sinful in our original state will miss the mark on how we get help out of this. Two, our culture is saturated with sex. Self-serving, 
avalanche of selfish pleasure comes raining down on every generation once we step into the world. This, I have to have a boyfriend, I have to have a girlfriend, I have to have a significant other, I have to have a lover attitude, is saturating every aspect of not just the media, but culture. This idea that pleasure and sex, this idea that being fulfilled is the meaning of life, the whole reason I exist, is eating and eroding away at the very life of millions around us. And the church is no different. The biblical view of sex is mocked. Why do affairs happen? We are basically sinful. Our culture is saturated with sex. And the biblical view of sex is mocked. This blatant mocking of God's standard erodes away at the safeguards against affairs in many homes. This idea that Christianity is a a, a prudish mindset. It's a boring, no excitement life to live is eroding away at homes. Four, people make little or no effort to resist the culture or to take precautions to guard themselves, to keep themselves holy, and to protect their marriages. If you're taking notes, circle number four, I think this is one of the biggest traps. It's one thing to say, well, we are basically sinful. It's another thing to say that our culture is messed up and perverted. It's another thing to say that people don't, don't hold to the biblical standard of what sex should be. But number four, we often don't protect our own marriage. We don't protect ourselves, and we begin to fall into a trap. Well, what can we do? There are things we can do. First, move out of the position of being upset and uncomfortable about talking about the things that God wants to talk about. Not to just sit back and to wade in despair of the temptation you face or, or the failures you've had in the past, but be proactive Be intentional. Here's a few ways we can do that. One, we can make a commitment to God's standards. Decide before temptation arrives what our standards will be. Renew your vow to your spouse often. Men, I want to talk to you for a minute. Ladies, you can go to sleep. Or you can use this for ammunition, however you want to. Guys, one time to commit our vow to our spouse is not enough. This was the first time I made a promise to my wife. But how many times can you recommit your vow? It's not just something good to do on a 20th or 25th or 50th anniversary. But it can happen on a continual basis. Continue to recommit to the promises you have made to her. We need to confess our vow to our spouse and to others. Guys, I'm tired of hearing about how we get in what I call locker room situations. Maybe it's at the office. Maybe it's on the golf course. Maybe it's wherever guys hang out in your circle of influence. And they begin to have unholy talk. And I hope I'm not bursting the bubble for anybody, but this is a fact. This is around us in every age category. And when one man says to another, hey, did you see her? Oh, oh my goodness. I would like to, and then fill in the blank. This is a time to confess our vow to our spouse. Why don't we man up and say, you know what? I am married. I've made a lifelong promise to my wife, and no, I would not like to do whatever. Uh, no, I, I didn't see whoever you saw. Or be honest, uh, no, 
I don't want to continue to see what I saw that you saw. Confess our commitment to our spouse. Confess our vow to our spouse and to everyone who is in earshot around us. If you're facing temptation with someone of the opposite sex and you want to help just nip it in the bud, talk about your wife, talk about your husband as often as you can in positive light. Confess your vow and your love for them directly into those around you. This is how we can help. Make a commitment to God's standards. Second, we need to magnify the consequences. Not minimize it, magnify it. All sin separates us from God, this is true. Yet not all sin has the same scars here on earth. Hear me, this is not a hierarchical of sins. If I steal a pack of gum or I commit adultery, all sin separates me from God. But the scars here on earth between stealing a pack of gum and the scars here on earth between having an affair and committing adultery are not the same. In fact, Jesus is very clear that the sin of sexual sin is a sin against our own body. And we need to magnify the consequences that this brings. Looking at the the facts of the sexually transmitted diseases that are all around us. I'm not trying to scare you, but we need to magnify and say, hey, this is a result of careless behavior and commitment to our spouse. Magnify the statistics of broken families that are affected by a selfish decision in a moment. Magnify the problems of delinquent fathers who either are not able to or do not desire to be a faithful provider for those who they have fathered. The scars of sexual sin are very real. The shame God does not want anyone to carry. And as I started earlier, if this is bringing up a painful memory of yours or for someone else, my heart is not to beat you up tonight. My heart is to offer hope and grace and love to you. But we need to hear, even at the expense of sometimes our own discomfort, how we can avoid the trap of committing adultery. The scars, we need to magnify them. The sense of loss that happens for everyone, not just for the one who gets caught, But the scars for the kids, the scars for the spouse, the scars for the friends who are now forced to try to choose sides and try to find a way to make normal what is no longer normal. Don't just count the cost, but magnify the consequences. Third, I can do something by trying to maintain my marriage. Strengthen my marriage. Tell your spouse that you want to be their best friend. Try to figure out how to outserve them. We know that marriage is not a 50-50 relationship, but no one said you can't compete and try to outserve them. I'm a competitive person. And I know that competition can be unhealthy sometimes, but if I'm going to try to be as selfless as I can and try to outserve Carrie, I'm going to do my best. I'm human, and just like you, I have days where I think, well didn't quite get what I gave last week. Let God turn that around and say, you know what? Yes! Then I outserve my spouse. This is not trying to put them down or, or grade what they have done for you, but to maintain our marriage is the most manly thing that I can think about doing. It's the most uh, Proverbs 31 thing of a woman of all women to do is to maintain our marriage. Guys, uh, I, I believe in the headship in the home. 
stand up and take responsibility for the health of your marriage. Women, I'm not saying you don't have a role or a part, but guys, it it just starts with us. Start being a servant. The headship in the home is no place to start lording over our, our desires and how this is how it should be. This is how I should serve. This morning, the Lord was reminding me as we were taken by communion together that he had to remind his disciples what he was about and who he was. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. To be a leader in the home, men, is to out-serve. I can maintain my marriage and I can manage my mind. What can I do to safeguard my marriage, manage my mind? People don't just fall into adultery. I don't care who you are. I don't care what story you've been told. I don't even care what experience you've had. Something happened before you fell into adultery. And it always starts in the mind. Every sin starts in the mind. It starts by accepting a sinful thought. We let that thought linger. Then we begin to recall that thought, and then we rehearse it. I love how one theologian has told us. It's kind of crass, but it helps me remember. So get ready. Here it comes. You can't help a bird from flying over your head and pooping on your head. You can't help that. But you can keep a bird from building a nest in your hair or goatee or lack thereof. One, you actively participate in allowing it to happen, and the other is a dive bomb attack. Temptation is not sin. The enemy will throw all kinds of temptation at all of us. But when we actively begin to say, well, uh, where'd that thought come from? Let me think about that for a minute. And then we recall that thought. Now, Now, what was it I thought? Oh, that was a good thought. And then we rehearse them and we begin to think about it again. This is the entry point for an affair. Emotional involvement that is unhealthy often follows this thought pattern. I just need somebody to talk to. I I, I just need more than what I'm getting at home and so I'm going to get it elsewhere. Look out for an emotional affair. Intimacy with the opposite sex. Sharing details about the problems we have in our marriage with someone of the opposite sex is always a very dangerous thing and almost always unadvisable. Don't do married things with your heart with someone whom you're not married to. Now hear this, unbelievers often skip this stage of an affair and they move quickly into the uh, physical intimacy of an affair. But Christians denying what is happening often stay stunted in this emotional portion of an affair because we can rationalize somehow. Well, I haven't done anything physically. Friend, it is already moving in an affair. This rationalizing comes in forms like this. I love my wife. I love my wife and my children. And I don't want to get a divorce. So it's better that I have an affair than get a divorce. What? What? I've heard this. I really love my wife and I love my kids and I'm not getting what I need and I have to get what I need. So it's better for me to have an affair than to have a divorce. So really what I'm doing is loving for my family. This is rationalizing to the highest degree. My husband is not fulfilling me, and so I have to, I have to be fulfilled. So I don't want to divorce my husband and, and lose my kids and, and hurt everybody. So having an affair is the most loving thing I can do. No! Rationalizing. I wasn't looking for this. It just happened. Really? Really? 
We are soulmates. I can't help it that this person that I met after I'm married, we are soulmates. Friend, you can be a soulmate to whomever God has joined you together with. Well, you haven't met my spouse. No, I haven't. But every person is human. Get this. The people that you think you are so attracted to, you see them at work and they smell nice and they look pretty and all these things are, are just so wonderful. You don't see them at home when they have curlers in their hair and when they're stricken with diarrhea. Guess what? Everybody gets diarrhea. Everybody has morning breath. But when people are on their best behavior and you see them when everything is so great, it can play tricks with your mind. And we need to acknowledge this is a trick with our mind. They're my soulmate. They're so perfect. You haven't seen them in all the areas of life. The greatest soulmate is the one you can do life with in the highs and the lows. Committed to them when they please you and when they don't please you. You just take time to hear the story of someone who has lived faithful to their spouse for 50, 60, 70 years. It can bless you. It will help you see that there is a different definition of satisfaction and intimacy than what the world is telling us. James 1, 4, uh, excuse me, 1, 14 and 15. Each one is tempted by his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. And then after a desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This process of an affair is spelled out right here in James for us. Most Christians won't get serious about their mind. We say, well, it's just a thought, but it all starts here. Fifth, we need to maintain holy relationships with members of the opposite sex. Don't listen to people gripe about their spouse over and over and over when it crosses an emotional line. Often, it's wise to bring in somebody who is their same gender to help counsel them. Now, I don't want to make you or us paranoid about any kind of conversation with someone of the opposite sex. But friends, we know when it is crossing a line emotionally. There are some people, for whatever reason, there has been a warning flag that's gone up in my ministry. And I will talk to Carrie and I'll say, that woman, God bless her, I hope she gets to heaven, but it won't be through anything that I say to her. God has called me to a marathon of ministry, not to try to risk something. It's okay to draw boundaries. We're not trying to be judgmental of a person, but protect the relationship you have in your marriage. Pastor, you said you had grace and hope. If I had pain attached to what you're saying, and I don't feel a lot of grace, and I don't feel a lot of hope. If you find yourself either the victim of adultery or you find yourself as the guilty party. There's a pathway back to purity. Whether it's physical adultery, whether it's emotional adultery, whether it's cyber adultery, whether it's mental adultery, there is a pathway back to purity. First, acknowledge the sin and repent. Acknowledge the sin and repent. Well, I'm not so sure that I really want to get to all those details, friend. There's no freedom until I confess and repent that as sin. Having sex outside of marriage is sin. Having an emotional relationship, doing married things with my heart, with someone who I'm not married to, it is sin. Until I call it what it is, until I repent from it, there's no pathway back. But if I'm willing to repent and I'm willing to ask for forgiveness, there is a pathway back to purity. Second. 
Oh, I wish I could, could say this louder, but my, my voice hurts. End the relationship and actions immediately. Jesus, I want you to forgive me of my sin. I'm so sorry I got caught. But I can't just be rude and cut off all communication. Yes, you can. Be rude. Cut off all communication. Don't ever go there again. Well, I mean, that's just not realistic. Make it realistic. Make it realistic. Take on that yourself and make a commitment. I'm not going to go there with that person or someone like that again. Third, avoid all contact with the person from now on. Do whatever it takes. Four, seek support and accountability in the restoration process. Pastor, I just like one. I just want a pathway back to purity, and I want to repent, and I want to ask for forgiveness. That is where it is. You don't have to earn forgiveness. You don't have to earn anything else. God will forgive you, and he will separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. He will not remember it. And you are forgiven and free from your sin. But friend, the scar of that sin here on earth will linger. And there still is a pathway to purity after that. And follow these steps for health and hope. I share this with you, not out of a heart of condemnation. But I've seen too many miracles in marriages where a wife has said to a husband, I have every reason, I have what I feel is every right and every feeling to be done with you because of your infidelity. But she made a decision to say, I want you to have an opportunity to repent, and I want you to have an opportunity to have a pathway back to purity. And the husband answered that call, not because the wife asked, and it was a long road, but a miracle happened. I've seen it time and time again. If you're here tonight and and you say, that was not my story, my spouse did not want to repent, hear me, I'm not speaking condemnation to you, I'm not speaking lightly about this. God has hope for you. But we have to speak loud and strong, because as soon as we break and we find Culver's or, what's that new one, Mexican... Salsa, salsa grill. Oh, my ADD just went to salsa grill. That's an amazing place. I have no idea why I was talking about salsa grill. Before we go to some restaurant, and, and this teaching is now a million miles from our thought, the world will bombard us over again with this skewed idea of what intimacy is. Let's ask the Lord to take this teaching deep into our heart tonight. Father, I thank you that you don't just give us a list of rules because you were bored one day and you wanted to see if you could get us to jump through hoops. I thank you that you didn't give us a list of ten commandments because you were angry at one of us and you wanted to make sure we paid you back. I thank you that you didn't come up with a list of ten commandments to take the joy out of life, but you said, I want you to have life and have it to the fullest. And if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, these commandments will be a way of life. Lord, simplify them for us again in our heart. Help us not just to memorize them, but to live them and to love you with our sexuality. Thank you, Jesus, for the seeds you're planting in us now. In your name we pray. Amen. May God bless you. And would you take the truth that God has put in your heart and be willing to speak it in love 
to a friend or family member. God bless. You're dismissed.